it's easy to get suckered into doing really heavy discounting on Prime Day, and that's not always necessary. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 40, and today's guest is John Shea, president and founder of Momentum Commerce. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by John Shea, president and founder of Momentum Commerce. John, welcome to the show. Um, thanks, Mark. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so we're recording this, uh, you know, mid-June uh, 2021. Uh, seemingly, we are uh, getting back to some sense of normalcy. How are you and your family doing? Um, we're doing wonderfully, actually. Uh, it's been an interesting year, that's for sure. But I'm um, very excited for warm weather in Boston and um, uh, more social engagement with friends and family. So we're doing well. Thanks for asking, Mark. We try to jump into the the podcast here, getting some background from uh, the the guest, um, either something that you know you might think is remarkable about you, or you know perhaps you know kind of your first story where you grew up, you know something that you know give a flavor for John Shea. Uh, for for your listeners, I, I grew up in southeastern Connecticut in a town called Norwich. In my childhood, the Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun casinos were built right around where I grew up. Um, so that was sort of an interesting area uh, to be located. Uh, I have two sisters, one who's older and one who's younger. Uh, they're both smarter and harder working than I am. So uh, uh, luckily I was the only boy, uh, I guess. Um, I have awesome parents. Um, I'm sort of the male version of my mom. We both love Tina Turner, our crazy high energy, annoyingly competitive and, and endlessly confident and optimistic in our worldview. Uh, my dad is my ultimate role model very selfless, humble, high integrity person. Um, I think the most remarkable thing in my life has been my ability to forge wonderful relationships with amazing people. And that's helped me in my social life and in my, and my professional life both, but I'm, I'm very lucky. P people who know us, uh, you know, look at my wife and I and constantly wonder how on earth I convinced her to marry me. Um, so you married up, is that what you're saying? I, I, I married way above my, my weight class and in and, and most endeavors that involve picking a partner, uh, I've done very well. And so in, in business and, and how I've assembled a, a small team at Momentum Commerce, which is a business that was started in the middle of the pandemic, I've, I've been able to pull together some of the most impressive people uh, I've ever worked with. Um, uh, that's been um, a quality that served me well in life. Um, and I'm, I'm very lucky uh, for that. So uh, I'd offer that. 
Well, I, I would say um, for our listeners, uh, John gave a very good description of himself because uh, we'll, we'll get a little bit into uh, where I first met John. But you know, we've stayed, uh, you know, industry colleagues and and friends uh, here for a few years now. And um, you know, he is exactly what he just said—a good guy, a good networking guy. And I'm, I'm not surprised that he's got. Uh, he's been able to surround himself with uh, good people uh, at Momentum. And, and we'll talk about starting a business in the pandemic for sure. You went to Tufts. Um, I guess I, I didn't realize you grew up in Connecticut, but I kind of get the Northeast thing. And so at Tufts, what was your, uh, what, what was your focus? Political science and English, you know, kind of classic liberal arts education, learned how to write well and read and analyze uh, content. Um, but uh, Tufts was interesting. Uh, Tufts has a very heavy international student population. Um, I really took away from that a global perspective. My friends in college all lived around the world. I had a group of 10 very close friends that were sort of equally from Asia, Europe, and uh, the Americas. And it was um, a lot of fun to go through the college experience and uh, do that with people from all over the world. Um, and uh, I met my wife in college too, which is probably the most uh, important uh, uh, thing I gained from that experience. But um, huge, huge fan of Tufts University. Um, I had a wonderful uh, education there. And uh, so you started, you know, coming out of Tufts in finance, which is kind of how I got my start as well, right? What were you thinking you, were, you wanted to do? Truthfully, after college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I needed a job. I needed to make money. And the industry that was going to pay me the most was uh, finance. And so I, uh, and I I'd always liked math and sort of made sense. Um, so I, I worked as a financial analyst at a very large hedge fund, Tudor Investment, um, which is based in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, so sort of living in Stamford and spending social time in New York City and working in Greenwich is kind of a funny place to be when you're 22 years old. But that was the beginning of uh, my professional career. Much like I had a, a kind of a shift in in my career, I went from public accounting into marketing in a startup uh, business. You made not quite the same, but you made a shift from finance into a, a strategy position um, into a, a business called Rim Kaufman RKG, which uh, you know I know through the industry. What was that about for you? Uh, was it trying to get out of finance? Yeah. yeah. So. so uh... So to be clear, actually, when I left finance, I went to Google first, um, and I sort of did a sabbatical from Google, uh, working for Rim Kaufman Group, RKG, what is now Merkel. Um, I wasn't happy professionally working in finance. Um, I loved data analysis and enjoyed some of the skills I was picking up, but the, the culture and mission weren't things I was super passionate about. Um, so I actually quit that job on my 365th day because somebody had once told me that you can't quit a job before uh, a year. A year. Uh, um, so I did, I did it literally on my one year anniversary. And um, I was fortunate enough where at that time, this was in 2007, um, Google had just opened um, its Boston office and was hiring for a landing team to support uh, the growth of AdWords out of Boston. I wanted to move back to Boston, which is where I'd gone to college. Um, you know, really only took the job because at that point in time, Google was a cool company and I thought it would be interesting. I ended up falling in love with technology, with advertising, with data-driven advertising and became kind of an accidental sales guy. Um, I, I was hired as, as an analyst um, 
and then my role just sort of changed within six months to a sales role and um, actually found that, you know, when it was something I believed in, I loved doing sales work. Um, that's that story. So you say you started Google roughly 2007, you were there five years. So, you know, you left there, you know, almost 10 years ago. Um, we, I think we've got, you know, a number of listeners that are, you know, kind of early stage in their career. So they're way younger than me for sure. And, and even younger than you kind of set the stage for us. You know, what was Google like 10 to 15 years ago um, versus, you know, what we all think of about it today? It was um, remarkable. That, that experience changed the tra trajectory of my professional life more so than anything else. Uh, I, I left finance right before the collapse, right? Uh, <laughs> so if you, if you, you know, there was no foresight on my behalf. I didn't see any of that coming. I just uh, wanted to get out of there. But, but when, then what, what happened in e-commerce as the recession came in, Google was built primarily on an advertising business and it was advertising that you could draw a straight line to sales in. And so it performed remarkably well throughout the recession. As a company, um, there were just amazing leaders. I was um, hired in by a woman named Lexi Reese, who's just an incredibly inspiring leader. Um, she had an incredible command of business but a leadership style that really resonated with me. She was honest, she was vulnerable, she was uh, open and connected emotionally with everybody she worked with, but she was also one of the best business drivers I've ever seen, super data-driven, really oriented on how she planned things. And she invested a lot in, in culture, was ruthless with, with hiring standards, hired just incredible people. So I was super lucky, I think that, that whole experience was similar to what I mentioned earlier about feeling like I married up in, in life. I, I was surrounded by people where I didn't, I didn't feel like I fully deserved to be there. Uh, and um, that was uh, inspiring and exciting. There was also all the, all the wild perks of working for Google back then. You know, I think some of those have been trimmed down, but it was completely extravagant. I had three meals a day that were excellent. We would, you know, there was all, all kinds of activities and, um, it was a fun place to be. I ended up building great friendships, um, uh, loving this industry. And then I think in terms of, you know, professional access, I was young then. I you know, really didn't have a lot of business experience, but Google was so hot as a company. My job quickly became advising CEOs, people with way more business experience than I had. <laughs> that ended, I, I ended up building an incredible network of mentors uh, and, and people who uh, I've stayed in touch with since who have helped me in my career and I've learned a lot from them. So I was, I was very lucky to just be in the right place at the right time where I could then absorb as much knowledge as I could from, from people that had amazing experience but might not know everything that's going on with, with AdWords or Google as a company. Um, it was a great experience, Mark. Was there any one thing in particular that stood out um, for you from a cultural perspective that you took into some of the other roles that you've had and, and now as you start your own business at Momentum? There, there are a few things in terms of how like the business operated that, that went across culture and strategy. You know, one of the things that Google sort of pioneered I think the two that have stuck with me the most, like one is the idea of OKRs, you know, objectives and key results, quarterly planning and measurable uh, results. I, I've always been somebody who's very competitive and goal oriented. And so 
finding myself in a situation where there was really good rigor around goal setting made me a lot better. Um, I've taken that with me and, and sort of used that. And, and that's become a framework that I think has been popularized outside of Google. But at the time, that was that was sort of a, a new thing that they'd sort of pioneered. Um, the other one is, and it's it sort of, it wasn't formalized while I was there, but there's been books written on it subsequently, um, is a communication style in business, which is, there's a book called Radical Candor. Have you heard of that, Mark? No, I haven't. It's sort of a, a communication framework which involves being very direct in your communication with your business colleagues, but also being very open about how you care about them. And for me, that, that's been helpful because uh, it's, it's sort of, if you can build a relationship with the people you work with that is um, rooted in trust and respect and um, kindness and genuine care for one another, it becomes a lot easier to be brutally honest about what's not working well and what needs to be fixed. That was, you know, that, that sort of permeated the culture uh, of that office. And, and that's something I took with me um, from the experience. So those, those might be the two things I would call out. I'm going to have to check out radical candor. Um, certainly in my career, um, I've, I've been told that I am direct. <laughs> we'll but, but you, you would you would like that, Mark, because you are, in, in my work with you, you've always been very direct, but you also are uh, incredibly supportive and caring of the people that you work with and, and that work for you. And it's, 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 that works, right? It's when you're direct and you don't care about the people you're working with that that becomes kind of toxic. Um, uh, yeah, well, thank framework. you. Thank you for that. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, having worked on the brand side for most of my career and, and have worked with so many people that are selling to me or, or are, you know, account people, you know, working for companies, you know, the one thing that they have, and, and I admit this, I'm, I'm tough, but I think I'm fair. And, you know, it's, it's funny, so many sales and, and account people say, you know, look, I wish people always told us where we stood, we'd all be better off for it. You know, you want to do it respectfully, for sure. Um, you want to, you know, not just talk emotionally. You want to try to have numbers to back up, you know, why you feel like you do. But, you know, I, if I had a dollar for each time, you know, somebody on the account side said, geez, you know, we'd much rather hear what you have to say than to find out that you're firing us and us not having ever seen it coming. You know, I've tried to live by that. So great time at, at Google for you. But you then decided, you know, it was time to move on. Tell us about that next step. I, I actually um, boomeranged at Google. So I left, um, mo most of what I was doing was uh, business development with large agencies that had built their own technology to use math to buy search advertising on Google more effectively. And uh, was consulting with some of the largest agencies. At the time, they were all independent companies. Now they've all been acquired and all live within the large agency holding companies. But one of the agencies I worked uh, closely with was called the Rim Kaufman Group, um, RKG. Uh, it was born out of some folks from Crutchfield, uh, which is the old uh, the electronics um, catalog company. Just from sitting inside of Google, I just watched the way that they participated in the AdWords auctions and had great admiration for how they ran the business. Um, uh, incredible use of statistics, automation, and, and, and really good marketing acumen to drive demonstrable lift in businesses. And I was excited about that. And so I actually left Google to go join them. And I made a mistake, I think, 
in managing my own career and that experience and that that was a great company i did a good job of picking out a company that was worth going to work with i ended up growing and getting acquired by uh merkel and, and uh, uh it was a wonderful company the mistake i made was because i was young in my career and i had happened to work for google which was this big uh success of a company and had a lot of cachet to it I sort of stepped into a VP of strategy role where I was responsible for sales and product development. And I, I really stepped into shoes that were too big for me to walk in based on the experience I had. And that was a great, humbling career experience. I just um, I wasn't fully comfortable in that role. I wasn't, I hadn't really earned it. I'd sort of gotten my way there um, because I was, uh, you know, coming from Google. It was a good lesson in young ambition and that it's sometimes better to sort of work your way up into a position than to jump into a, a role that might be a little too big for you. And that was a, I, I like to call it a sabbatical and a good learning experience, but I ended up sort of being overwhelmed by the size of the role. And, and I, I took a job back at Google and did another year at Google before, again, trying to scratch that itch of moving into a role where I would have uh, more autonomy and more ability to influence success. One thing that was challenging at Google was the company was just so successful. It was always very hard to understand how successful you were operating there. Was it, was, it, was it me or was the company just on fire and I was along for the ride kind of thing? So I went to a very early stage startup called Skyward. This, this was 2011, 2012 timeframe. Uh, and uh, at that point in time, there'd been a lot of changes in Google's search algorithms and social media was kind of on the rise and there was a flight to quality so you know the, the seo tactics of back in the day of sort of gaining links to, to gain visibility and search were no longer working and there was a need to communicate with consumers and social both of those things required brands to scale uh content to, to actually become content creators the thesis behind skyward was that you needed good software to orchestrate that process and you needed freelance editorial talent. So it was a network of freelance editorial talent and a, and a workflow software tool, which is a really cool thesis. It was a little bit early, and so it was kind of a jungle stage startup where we were trying to uh, uh, come to market with something compelling. Um, over time, that company's actually done quite well, and as, um, uh, you know, as, as more and more brands, uh, particularly B2B businesses, invest in becoming publishers, they've created a good system. But um, I worked there for two years after Google. You and I met um, at a company called Critio. Um, and you know, you talked earlier in the conversation about you know being a sales guy or morphing into a sales guy. Maybe walk us through in your mind, you know, what what makes a great salesperson? Sales is not a gene that some people inherit and others don't. Uh, I think it's a process um, and a series of techniques that anybody can learn. Great salespeople are taught, not, not born, if that makes sense. Um, the relationship between a buyer and a seller is more of a level playing field. You know, I think before the internet, it was maybe more of an information disadvantage. Um, now it's more about you know, your ability to understand where and how value is created in a business and how it can be influenced and how to connect the dots between that and whatever it is that you might be selling. Um, so it's about sort of the solution architecture uh, and being a good consultant. But you know, one thing I've learned in you know, at Critio, I had, uh, had the opportunity to build a hundred-person sales organization. Is 
you know, you, you have to not only be a great consultant who can construct a, a meaningful solution uh, and communicate well with a client around what that solution is, but you need to have the drive of a competitive salesperson. <laughs> you, you, you need to um, want to embrace the emotional weight of having a quota on your head, really being only as good as uh, the number you produce for a company. And there are certain personalities that love that and thrive on that, and it makes them better and makes them work harder. And then there are some personalities that um, are crippled by that kind of pressure, uh, really struggle in that role. So um, I, I do think there are, are personalities that are comfortable with sales as a function and those that aren't. Yeah, it's interesting because I've always looked at it. That there's a technique that you have to learn, but the personality type, and not only just from the quotas, you know, but having the personality type to be consultative, to be you know confident about what you're selling, um, to be able to be you know confident to walk into a room and uh, put your hand out and say, "Hi, my name is Mark Friedman." Not to be so overt that I want to you know I'm Mark and I want to sell you something, but you know have it be more organic. And I don't think that's necessarily taught. I mean, personally, and I've never been a sales guy. I'm not sure that's, that's taught. I think to some degree you have to either have it or you don't. Maybe. Yeah. I, I think, uh, by the way, Mark, you'd be a fabulous sales guy. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think I, I have seen a lot of introverted people be fabulous at sales. And in particular, if they're naturally uh, immensely curious uh, because so, so much of sales is just great discovery. And so if you really want to dig in on a business and understand what's going on and, and what levers exist to improve that business, you know, if, if you can grab onto that, maybe more so than the, you know, whining and dining kind of salesmanship, oftentimes you're better at figuring out the solution and building the business case as to why um, a change or, or, or uh, could make sense. Talking about being curious, it's a it's a great segue into Critio and and my um, experience working with Critio. So tell tell the audience what Critio is, um, at least when you were there. Sure. Yeah. So I was hired at Critio right after the company had gone public. Um, it's a French uh, technology company. Um, was predominantly known at that point in time as um, the biggest um, e-commerce retargeting platform. So the you know product-based ads that followed you around the internet, reminding you of what was in your shopping cart a few days uh, prior. Um, and Critio had initially built the business um, primarily by providing that service to the top you know, 50 retailers in every market around the globe. And, and those sort of really big enterprise clients, um, Walmart, JCPenney, um, you know, these types of uh, businesses, Overstock, were the initial client set. I was hired right after the IPO to scale that offering into the middle market. So you know, the thousands of smaller e-commerce uh, players, um, and we started out as a really small accidental business. I think it might have been a $10 million business or something when, when I started. And I had a six-person team. And, you know, this is this earlier days for dynamic retargeting. Um, we had a great product over the course of four and a half years. We were able to build up a 100-person sales team and build a $100 million business inside of Critio doing that. Today, Critio still provides that service, but they've innovated quite a bit and offer other um, display advertising solutions, particularly for e-commerce. Um, but they also acquired a business a few years ago called Hook Logic, 
which is the foundation of Criteo retail media, which is the ability to um, buy advertisements if you're a brand on a retailer website. If you wanted to buy ads on target.com and you're a brand, um, Criteo's technology would help power some of that. It's very similar, it's very aligned to what we do at Momentum Commerce, where we manage that kind of ad buying for our clients. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. And so, you know, when I, when I look at your career, you know, now, you know, you've got Google, so, you know, very much advertising technology, kind of call that uh, the paid search aspect. And then you were in Criteo and you had, you know, the, the advertising uh, that you just talked about from a retargeting perspective. And then you kind of morphed into, well, we've got Amazon, we've got marketplaces, you know, that's another big place that direct-to-consumer brands want to play. Talk about Momentum, um, what that business is, and, and what you're trying to do for clients. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity too. Yeah, so Momentum Commerce is a, a digital retail consultancy with a heavy data science focus. Um, uh, we basically help manufacturer or direct-to-consumer brands uh, scale revenue growth on marketplace channels. So Amazon, Walmart, Target.com, Instacart's platform, if, if you're a grocery manufacturer, and uh, a variety of other retailers, depending on the category, maybe Wayfair or Chewy, depending on categories. Um, it's an exciting opportunity. I think what we've seen, obviously, in the last year is tremendous growth in e-commerce. I think the forecast is that e-commerce in the U.S. will be about a trillion dollars uh, this year, which is a wild number. You know, going back to 15 years ago when I was at Google, and it was you know it was a tiny uh, drop in the bucket, and a lot, there were a lot of brands that didn't think it was going to stick around even. Um, and to see the influence it has now is incredible. But you're also seeing heavy concentration within that on really large platforms. So Amazon is about half of all of that sales. Walmart is quite a bit smaller than that, but, but not, a, uh, not a too distant second and is growing at, I think, 80% year over year. Target is growing 120% year over year. And, and so I think what you're seeing happening is these large companies are able to provide a consumer experience that's just far superior than a direct brand can do. Amazon can get you a package the next day to your house. Um, and it's really that uh, logistics battleground um, that I think is, is driving a lot of convenience for consumers and then concentration. So brands are scrambling to figure out, okay, how do we win in these environments where we don't control the customer um, and where there's a different set of tools and playbook for how you can scale a business. Um, so Momentum Commerce is built to guide brands through that. We provide five different services, data services, helping brands organize all of the data associated with selling on those platforms, insights, helping them understand what the consumer sees on the retailer sites so they know their digital shelf, Strategy consulting, um, looking at organizational capacity and capability and driving transformation. And uh, then we provide services to grow business. Uh, these platforms are increasingly 
driven by advertising and we provide a very sophisticated media service to help clients extract better lift from Amazon advertising, Walmart advertising, Target advertising, uh, et cetera. And we also provide a content at scale service to help brands improve their product content and drive better conversion uh, on retailer platforms as well. When a, when a retailer comes to you, they presumably have a, their own, you know, D2C site. Um, how are you counseling them to be thinking about, you know, there's still businesses out there that question whether they want to be on Amazon, um, whether it's going to cannibalize their D2C business. So how do you help them think through that question? Yeah. So on the, on the D2C brands, it's, so, it's such a reluctant migration into Amazon, but it's a necessary one. That if you're not present there, you're just missing opportunities to meet new customers. And it's a bit of a head in the sand kind of strategy. You, you know, but if you're a D2C brand and, and you're sort of built on this sort of dynamic of acquiring customers and maximizing LTV, you know, the playbook you need on Amazon where you don't own the customer is totally different. You know, I think that the two things that we always try to focus on is really helping them understand that the playbook is different. It's more of a flywheel dynamic where you're buying customers to improve organic visibility and, and earn profitable sales that way. Um, and the other thing is that you don't need to put your whole assortment on Amazon. That's often a huge mistake. You want to make sure you're strategic in which uh, uh, products you're putting on the Amazon platform and, and how you're controlling the customer experience there. And with, uh, you know, we're today's June 17th, Prime Days, you know, coming up, um, I think it's June 21st and June 22nd. What, what do you help your clients do to prepare for that and to make sure that they get their fair share of business in those days? You know, at this point, if you're a brand, the die's been cast and, and what you got to do is commit to your strategy and, and execute in it. You know, I think we, we try to help plan uh, for Prime Day well ahead of time. And that can be difficult with communications from Amazon, depending on what kind of brand you are. One thing that I, I always counsel brands on is that it's easy to get suckered into doing really heavy discounting on Prime Day. And that's not always necessary. So it's all the discounts that attract consumers to shop more on Prime Day. Um, but what they actually buy isn't necessarily the things that are most discounted. So depending on your category and your margin structure, um, a strategy we like often is not to play into the heavy discounting, um, but instead to sort of look at Prime Day as a rising tide that will lift all boats and to market really aggressively into Prime Day instead of marking down and, um, and surfing better sales uh, just because there's more demand there and defending kind of the price point. Now, that's harder in certain sectors of, of retail that are more commoditized than others. Um, but with a strong brand, that's a play that we like a lot. A lot of data will show you that like, there's a, an old school kind of scrappy hack from the, the third party sellers in the Amazon marketplace where the most effective strategy is to sort of artificially inflate your price leading up to Prime Day so that you can settle it back at your normal price in, in a way that looks like a discount. Um, uh, and, and when you do that, you can really extract the most margin. Amazon doesn't like that. And you got to be really careful with that kind of technique. But I think that reveals the fact there's an opportunity to market very heavily and, and not always to discount around Prime Day, which is one thing I like to always talk to brands about. You know, just like any brand knows, uh, 
in e-commerce around Black Friday and stuff, you have all of the executional stuff that you just need to make sure it goes off without a hitch uh, during, you know, a highly condensed sales period. Uh, you know, a lot of things with respect to how you manage uh, media budgets and uh, uh, bidding and, and things like that are really important to be anticipatory and adaptive with. Interesting stuff. So one of the big things in our industry is is all, all the changes that are happening from a privacy and a, and a cookie um, perspective. Um, is that something that you're helping your clients, you know, navigate through first party versus third party data? To some extent, you know, like thinking about the world that we occupy at Momentum Commerce is digital retail where, where you don't own the customer, right? So, um, you know, one advantage there is, is you're not as uh, prone to the challenge that the, the crumble and cookie presents. Uh, and, um, you know, a lot of the work we do um, is protected from that shift. You know, I, I think this is actually probably going to be a net positive for the industry. It's going to be weird to see how things play out out over the next year or so and, and uh, things will adapt here. But from, from my perspective, you know, brands are going to uh, still be able to do behavioral targeting and segmentation. It's going to look a little bit different, but a lot of the cohort type solutions work pretty darn well. I think the, the real interesting thing there is it favors big tech. And so there's going to be a, a, a regulatory pressure on this that could change things. I think what happened in the UK last week is interesting. Like We're definitely seeing a challenge there where um, an architecture that doesn't enable third-party cookies without a good alternative is going to provide preference to the walled gardens. And that may not be a good thing for competition and innovation in the market. But I think assuming there's some change here, Two things that I'm excited about is this is going to force clients to get a whole lot better at measurement. Despite having the ability to use cookies to unify users across devices and browsers, I don't know any e-commerce marketer that's actually proud of the attribution model they have. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> I don't think anybody's actually solved that despite having all the data to stitch it together. And I think this forces better use of experiment frameworks to value marketing. So incremental lift uh, analyses, scientific experimentation as, as the right measurement vehicle. I'm excited for that change. I also think that marketers have gotten lazy about the value exchange for customer data. They just sort of expect to have it all and they're not doing much to give customers a reason to exchange that data. And I think that will drive um, a lot of creativity and innovation in how brands give customers utility or entertainment or value in exchange for the ability to market to them one-on-one. -on -one. I think that's, that's overall a good thing. As it relates to digital retail, like a lot of what you're doing is using the retailer's data to um, target uh, marketing and drive sales. So you're a little bit insulated from, from these challenges. I think they're, they're much, um, a much bigger challenge for dot-com marketing. Uh, that, that actually is creating quite a bit of growth in, in our category in, in retail media and uh, digital retail sales. Yeah, good stuff. Good thoughts. You, you've had an amazing career. So thanks for sharing it uh, all with us. Uh, I wish you the best of luck uh, with Momentum. Tell the, the listeners where they can find you on social media, John. 
Yeah, so I'm a big LinkedIn guy. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn and Momentum Commerce is on LinkedIn too. We, we, we uh, publish cartoons uh, weekly around uh, digital retail and retail media. Uh, we publish those on our blog, which can be found at MomentumCommerce.com and uh, cascade them out to LinkedIn as well. Sounds good. So John, thanks for the time. Uh, great to catch up and um, you know, let's uh, talk again soon. Okay, have a good rest of the day. Thanks so much, Mark. That's it. Today's game ball goes to John Shea for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, be direct in communications with colleagues and the people that work for you, but also being open about how you care for them. Their career, growth, their families all go a long way to establishing and maintaining a good working relationship. Number two, hire incredible people. That sounds simple, but it's not. Be thoughtful in establishing the job description for the role that you're looking to fill and strive to find people that will round out your weaknesses and those are the team that this person will work with. You cannot hire people that have all the same strengths and weaknesses. You're building a team, so make sure that you have each position covered. And number three, be rigorous in establishing business metrics and then the measurement and review of those metrics. You cannot manage what you do not measure, so establish and communicate out those vital factors of managing your business. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. 